Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is episode 65 of Haunted Muse, and it features the latest installment of my second novel, The Wolf You Feed. It's set in 1858 and written in epistolary format. Okay, so here we go. The Wolf You Feed, from the diary of Frontier School Teacher May Ulrich, August 15th, 1858. Although I've never been a willingly regular churchgoer myself, especially since my family passed, this morning I thought it might do to make an exception and show up. Initially, my thinking in this endeavor was that if there were any mothers with school-aged children in the area, then they would most likely be found in the highest concentration at church on Sunday morning. Therefore, it might help my recruitment efforts if I were to show up, appear like an upstanding citizen, and invite them to stop by and enroll on Monday. Not to mention that I might be able to find some women my age at least to have a cup of coffee with, which would help my feelings immensely at this point. Turns out, this seems to have been an excellent idea for my recruiting efforts at the school, but yet again, a poor one for my finding friends here. Wearing what I thought was a smart yet conservative dress of bright grass green knobby silk and a slimmer line pleated skirt with just a slip, because I hate those blasted crinolines, they're always getting stuck in the door, and a matching hat. Again, small-brimmed and tasteful, with only one dark green bow in the back, I stepped in quietly, and I took a seat near the end of the second pew. Within a few minutes, as the church began to fill, I found myself continuously being prompted to move, time and time again, as it appeared I was consistently sitting in someone else's favorite spot. As I moved, I could see the other women's hot eyes judging my outfit negatively as wearing a slimline skirt is generally only seen as fashionable for city women who work at jobs. At last, I gave up and stood in the back corner, scanning for a space. Of course, the pews being of average length, only two or three grown women in their large crinolines could sit on one of them with their companions, which meant that by the time the minister walked in from the side door, Every pew appeared to be full to overflowing. Not having a hymnal, I hummed along as best I could, standing in the corner, trying to participate without drawing too much attention to myself. Alas, my efforts there were unsuccessful, as when the minister motioned for the congregation to be seated following the hymn, I once again found myself without a place. However, rather than ask if anyone could make room, the minister cleared his throat loudly, and pointed at the back door. Not wanting to make a scene, I obediently backed out the door, as directed, again with every adult female eye in the place focused on me, shining with disapproval, as if I were an unruly child. Turns out, there were benches outside the church windows, facing back through the windows toward the pulpit, that were expressly for that purpose. With the windows open, I had a clear view of the minister, and when he next expelled a boy for whispering and shuffling his legs to accidentally kick the back of the pew in front of him, I was happy to have a companion outside. Now I say boy, but as he straightened to full height, I reconsidered. He was enormous, 
Not only was he over six feet tall, but he had a broad, strong-featured face that, if it weren't covered in freckles, would easily pass for a grown man's. He was heavy-set and muscular for his age, too, even though he couldn't yet be in his teens. And he had an unruly mop of thick, dark, curly hair that stuck out in every direction. On his way out of the sanctuary, he stepped on at least half a dozen feet, and when he sat down, I judged his boots to be almost twice the size of mine. Although he tried to act as if he were paying attention to the sermon instead of watching me out of the corner of his eye, I could see him studying me carefully. Finally, he couldn't stand it anymore and whispered, What did you do to get put out here? Seeing the minister watching me through the window, I carefully held the boy's gaze while I put, pulled a small notebook out of my bag and pretended to be copying down the words of the sermon. In reality, I was writing the boy a note, which said, I'm not sure. Perhaps it's because I don't fit into any of the pews. I'm the new teacher at the school down the street. Would you like to come? I start enrolling students tomorrow. As soon as the minister's gaze was averted, I passed the note to the boy, who took it eagerly. However, when he opened it in his lap, below the viewing level of the windowsill to read it, I could tell he was pretending, for he held the note upside down. Nevertheless, perhaps in embarrassment of this fact, he refolded it and put it into the back pocket of his breeches, and shook his head yes at me so emphatically that the minister called to him from the pulpit. A bit more reverence, Master Mooney. I can still see you out there on the porch. From the second pew where I had initially sat, I saw an entire family of faces, all sandier-haired variants of the freckled one of the young Mr. Mooney beside me, turn in our direction. The woman who sat in my former seat was extremely tall as well, but rail-thin with a very severe aquiline nose. She pursed her lips together into a thin, hard line and made as if to rise, but her husband motioned her down. I could see their children seated in a row like stair steps, their eyes sparkling with mischief as to what might happen to their brother next. Slowly, the other congregants turned until every eye in the place was fixed on the boy who sat on the pew to the right of the porch entrance. At first, he resolutely fixed his eyes on the whitewashed wooden walls of the church's exterior. But as the seconds ticked away, he ultimately lowered his gaze to the floor and closed his eyes, as if meditating. This action seemed to have satisfied the minister, who then continued on to his sermon, which was, ironically enough, about Jesus suffering the little children to come unto him. Not wanting to cause the boy any more trouble, I made no attempts to divert his attention further, but instead studied him as he had studied me. Even though his facial features were similar to those of his equally pale but freckled siblings, his hair and eyes set him apart. His eyes were round and so black, you couldn't tell where the iris ended and the pupil began. They were set rather deeply into his face, too, under thick, black brows that were very heavy for his age, on either side of a wide pug nose. He would grow up to be a very stout man with that bone structure, I thought to myself. Eventually, when he opened his eyes, which glowed dark with hatred as the minister droned on and on, not just at the minister himself, but also at the backs of his family in the second pew, the darkness 
bothered me. Having spent a lifetime observing children, I only know of one source from whence such a darkness comes, and it is never from the child himself. Hours later, long after my legs had gone to sleep, and so had I, sitting out there in the warm sun, I awakened from my daze as the congregation finished its last hymn and began to file out. Stationing myself at the bottom of the stairs and digging the leaflets that we'd been given to advertise the school out of my bag, I motioned for the boy to come over and stand beside me, and held out a handful of leaflets to him. He stumbled over, tripping on a loose board, and looked at them warily. What are they for? I had to make him admit it, even though I hated to, because I knew it would embarrass him, but I needed to go ahead and get it out of the way. Therefore, the new school that's opening down at the end of the street in a couple of weeks. I'm May Ulrich, and I'm going to be the teacher there. Stepping over closer to him, I stood on tiptoe to whisper in his ear. It's okay. I know you can't read them yet, but you will soon enough. That's what the school is for. I will teach you. He looked skeptical, but then took half of the leaflets that I offered him anyway and stood ready to hand them out. They looked extremely small in his massive, thick-fingered paws. As the families passed us, I began to notice that the mothers and fathers, even the children, would accept leaflets from me, but not from young Mooney. His face returned to its former hard look time after time, as he extended his hand with a leaflet to someone, and they turned away from him to take one from me. Although I was heartened by how many families seemed to be interested in signing their children up on Monday, it disturbed me how all of them ignored this boy. It seemed especially ridiculous because, at his size, it was like ignoring an elephant. Considering that they were among the last out, I thought I'd see if I could get it out of the boy's family why he was treated so. However, they did the same thing too, walking right past his outstretched hand as if he weren't there. Though the father, plump, pink, and round when standing, led the rest of the family on, the others of their tow-headed brood followed behind like ducklings. The mother lingered to speak with me about these children. She seemed interested enough in the prospect of their attending, but when I asked if Mooney would be joining us, she shook her head. No, oh no, I don't think so. Not Jonah, she murmured, acknowledging his presence at last. Then, softly, although not quiet enough for him not to overhear, he's not too bright, that one. He was my poor sister's boy. We've tried to teach him, but he gets everything all jumbled up, and he's clumsy, too. He'll turn out all right, though, with a, a bit more discipline. Strong Bill, like his father. Shouldn't have any trouble finding labor work, but hopefully, she glanced back, where he stood still and stony-faced, knowing that we were discussing him. Not the same temperament. Seeing him disguising his shame again, I couldn't resist pressing on with a lie. Well, we've been given special training at the Institute for more challenging cases, could you at least think about letting me have a try with Jonah? Perhaps some of the new teaching methods might help. Perhaps, she said dismissively. If you'd like an experiment, he's a good one to practice on. Certainly nothing to lose there. She laughed a high, false laugh <laughs> and excused herself to scurry after her husband. Jonah stood there facing me, once again with his eyes closed. I decided that the direct approach would be best. 
Well, Jonah, I've heard what your aunt thinks. Now, what about you? He opened his dark eyes and stared at me, clearly puzzled. About what? About school, I said, leaning on the word. You do want to learn how to read, don't you? I can teach you. I've never failed to teach any of my students, and a lot of them looked far dumber than you. Some better, but many dumber. I puffed out my cheeks and went cross-eyed as I said the word dumber. I mean, can you imagine? Some of them even look like this. Bowing my legs, I waddled, duck-like, as his uncle had only moments before, hoping he'd catch the reference. He did, and he started giggling, before clamping a hand over his mouth. I got closer and elbowed him in the ribs. All right, come on. What do you say? Like, now? Well, I was thinking in two weeks, but if you want a little head start, maybe yeah. Like, now. What other pressing appointments do you have this very afternoon? Nothing, he said. I usually just go out and kick around by myself on Sunday afternoons, ride my horse, stuff like that. Well, I have a horse. Perhaps we could ride together. Why don't you run home and tell your aunt that I'm asking her permission to start tutoring you ahead of time, so you'll be more up to speed. Then you see that schoolhouse building down there at the end of the street? He looked where I was pointing and nodded. Ride down there and knock whenever you're ready. I'll be inside pulling some things out of the stacks for you. Jonah stood again, staring at me, until I shooed him away. As I left, walking back to the school, it occurred to me that probably Jonah was so eager for my company because he was like Penny, a child who was always around plenty of adults but still remained virtually invisible to them. I barely had time to get back to the schoolhouse and open my book trunk when Jonah came galloping up on an enormous black horse with great shaggy feet. Its mane was so shiny it positively glistened in the sunlight. That's some horse you've got there. I said, sitting down next to the stack of books I'd pulled out. He beamed. Sir Gowan is the best horse ever. Isn't his coat fantastic? You should see me make him jump. Jonah wheeled the young stallion around in a circle so that I could see his powerful legs to full advantage. I can't wait, I said, trying to match his level of excitement. Actually, I was curious about seeing the two of them jump, even though it would possibly cause an earthquake. Still, I was almost as happy to have someone enthusiastic to talk to as he was. Almost, but being a grown-up, not quite. Turning back to my trunk, I rifled through and pulled out a book. Should we begin with Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, then? A cloud passed briefly over his face, like rain through a summer day. But then he brightened. Sure, I know that one by heart. It's my favorite. Have you read all the King Arthur tales? I asked, only realizing I'd misspoken after the words fell out of my mouth. Well, um, not exactly, but I know them. My mother read them to me. I see, I said, wanting to ask the next natural question, but hesitant. Jonah saved me by volunteering the information. It's okay to ask. Everyone here in town already knows, but they don't talk about it. She's dead. My father killed her. He was drunk, and they were arguing over his leaving the bank with my uncle and going out to the mine. She didn't want him to go. Oh. Oh, Jonah, I'm, I'm so sorry. It's okay. I mean, 
he stammered around. It is and it isn't. It happened a few months ago. I, I saw it happen, but like I said, I'm not supposed to talk about it with anybody. He backhanded her real hard and she fell down the stairs. They'd fought like cats that way for years and years. He was a pretty mean drunk always, but Mama stayed with him because he had money. He and my uncle, they were, are, partners in the bank here in town. The thinking is that if Pop can be in on the mine from the very beginning, well, they can make a fortune off of it. He's down there watching so that no gold gets skimmed before it's brought in, and Uncle Sam stays here to mine the bank in town. And nobody says nothing about Mama. Everyone knows, but he shrugged resignedly. Everybody wants to get rich, and they know Pop and Uncle Sam can make it happen. The only reason I told you is you'd find out anyway. I didn't want you to think that I was some kind of weirdo or something, because my aunt and uncle don't like me. Wincing at the matter-of-fact tone with which Jonah admitted he knew his aunt and uncle didn't care for him, I asked if his own father had ever hit him. When I was little, before I learned how to get out of the way, yeah. But I learned pretty quick to tell when he was off and to stay gone. It was easier than you'd think, especially because Mama was always willing to duke it out with him. She didn't drink at all. Aunt Ida, she doesn't either. Papa would come home from bank drunk, and Mama would start preaching at him, and they'd have a row. She was a good mother otherwise, and I miss her tons, but Jonah paused here again, searching for the right way to say it without seeming disrespectful. She could probably have saved herself if she'd spent less time on the Bible and more on what I did, finding ways to stay away. I'd been putting my saddle on Cresta as Jonah explained all of this, partly in an effort to let him get all of it out without having to be stared at, as he seemed to have the most to say when left talking into thin air. Having already changed into my bloomers and riding jumper, I swung up onto Cressida's back. As we turned the horses toward the path out of town, I changed the subject. So, how did you get Sir Gowan? Oh, Jonah said, patting the stallion reassuringly on the side of his neck as he came back into conversational consciousness. Uncle Sam and Aunt Ida gave him to me when I came to live with them a few months ago. Like I said, they're really good people. It's not that they don't dislike me that badly. It's just that, well, they're scared of the memory of your mother and father. Yeah, I, I guess. Mostly, though, that as I get older, I'll be like Papa. I look like him. Before he got really fat and sick, I mean, from drinking too much. But then I'm taller, too, like Mama. Everyone says I'll end up really big. Jonah stretched his arms out, and I had to steer Cresta away a few steps as he mumbled sorry and slouched back down. Jonah slouches a lot, which I realized as I slowly began to notice other things about him, too. I couldn't help it. I'd been trying so hard not to stare at Jonah this whole time that so that he wouldn't feel self-conscious as he was getting all this off his chest, but at last I knew why he looked so familiar even though I couldn't have ever seen him before. His stocky body frame, the dark curly hair, that pug nose, 
I studied Jonah's nose and thought about what it might look like after a lifetime of heavy drinking. I had to ask, Jonah, did your father have a big nose? Like red and bulbous looking? Yeah. How did you know? Jonah said, puzzled. Did you see him down at the mine or something? On the way into town? You could uh, say so, I replied, already lost in thought. Why don't you narrate the story of Sir Gowan for me as we ride around a bit? And when we stop, I want to show you a little technique that we call read-along and see if we can't start to figure out what's holding you up and progressing with your reading here, okay? He agreed, and as we began our loop of town, I only half listened to his near-perfect word-for-word recitation of Sir Gowan's tale. All I could think about was how sure I was that the man at the mine whom I had seen my wolf kill last night in my dream must have been Jonah's father. But if that's true, no, no, that, that can't be true. Because that would mean that my wolf isn't just a symbol in a dream at all. It would mean that, no, he's a real wolf? A lugaroo? But then, if that is true too, then what in the name of hell were those other creatures? Do I even want to know? This is the end of May Ulrich's August 15th journal entry. Be sure to tune in next time to The Wolf You Feed here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you.